Welcome to this week's edition of the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. Uh, here's Paul Harrell and Dominic Aquila with our weekly assessment of what uh, the readers of the Aquila Report chose as the top 10, not because they were looking to choose the top 10, it's just what caught their interest and what they read. And uh, so we calculate the numbers and there you have your top 10 of the over 56 articles that are put up on the Aquila Report on a weekly basis. And so we have this podcast, uh, you can hear it before the ten- the list comes out in the weekly newsletter on Tuesday. And so this is Monday, uh, December 19, 2022. And on the um, tomorrow on the 20th, it'll come out. Uh, then the uh, you'll be able to see what uh, your fellow readers have chosen. Uh, so we go over them just as a way of uh, uh, being able to review what the issues are and uh, sort of give you a highlight what's coming we can read and see whether or not we uh, were good in our explanation and application um, and maybe perhaps you're listening to this afterwards uh, hopefully the uh, you can interact with us and your thoughts and minds in any way uh, with reference to what we see here as Paul and I uh, discuss these uh, matters so Paul we're I think ready to begin and um, Trust everything's gone. I think it's getting colder in your neck of the woods. Yes. Yeah, we have a chance for a white Christmas uh, in my neck of the woods. Um, Not the day of, but it's going to be so cold that there may be snow left over uh, Hmm. for for Christmas. So that's uh, certainly uh, never, never, I guess it maybe has happened once in my lifetime. Also, programming note, uh, we will not be having a podcast uh, a week from today, the 26th. So that's right. Sorry to disappoint. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. Uh, people do call us and they, they uh, or email said, what happened? You all doing OK? I know. <laughs> so I'm know. glad that people miss us when we when we don't do it. But we take a break uh, for the holiday that one day uh, we'll be back in the new year of 2023. So, Paul, why don't you read the top 10 list from uh, 10 to 6? I'll read from 5 to 1 and then we'll start our quick discussion. Sounds good. Number 10 for last week, we have Nathaniel Blake, the most passionate science deniers are pro-trans experts who profit from carving up kids. Number nine, should Christians use the term Eurychrist for the Lord's Supper? Uh, That's Jonathan uh, Landry. And number eight, we have the final judgment written by Gregory K. Beale. Number seven, Race, Homosexuality, and Historical Confusion. This by S. Donald Fortson. And number six, The Rapture and the Return of Christ. This is by Nick Batzig uh, on number six. Okay, well, number five, The Big Tent Has Collapsed by uh, Jay uh, Therrell. And he will be talking about which tent that is in a minute. We'll see that. Uh, Then number four is the a progress report on christian nationalism uh by larry ball number three is the uh by carl uh, truman identity politics on the right uh number two we're uh told about let me excuse my cursor is a little slow beware the latitude of the pharisees and then number one worship and the Body of Christ, a response to Christopher A. Hutchinson by Matthew um, Adams. And so we'll start with that one, Worship and the Body of Christ, a response to Christopher Hutchins, 
Hutchinson, um, a, a serious uh, review of a PCA standards and its director of worship show that there is a limit as to who may read scripture in public worship. And the debate basically is that um, Christopher Hutchinson, who is a pastor in um, Blacksburg, Virginia, past PCA minister there, um, wrote an article on um, who and the question of who may uh, speak, uh, read the scriptures and or pray in public worship, the formal pu public worship services of the church, given what um, the directory of worship that the PCA follows as a for uh, the regulative principle, which is more directory uh, than it is, uh, you know, specific applications and uh, detailed instruction. And so that has been a debate going on in the church for a while. And so when Chris, uh, Reverend Hutchinson wrote his um, paper on it, very lengthy, very well reasoned. Uh, then Matthew Adams, who is pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Dillon, South Carolina, uh, wrote a response and very thoughtful. And in fact, we have a secondary response from um, Chris Hutchinson uh, that is on uh on the quota report even today, if uh, you want to sort of get a sneak peek ahead of time. So anyway, the point here is that uh, this debate is sort of insider baseball for the Presbyterian Church in America and other reform bodies with regard to uh, who can be engaged in the public worship in terms of praying as well as reading the uh, scripture. So the um, He's uh, in this uh, review um, and response, uh, Matthew Adams uh, says um, from the beginning of his paper, he rightly states that the Presbyterian Church in America does not have a fully constitutional directory of worship. He also rightly notes that presbyteries have allowed local sessions to have latitude in how they apply the regulative principle of worship in their worship services. However, one of the points that Reverend Hutchinson does not mention uh, is the PCA founding fathers desire to have a uniform book on worship. In fact, the first general assembly of the PCA directory for worship was explicitly named and included as a constitutional document like the rest of the book of church order. At the third general assembly, this language of our directory for worship being an approved guide for the ordering of worship was adopted. Furthermore, in an action that pinned one uh, assembly against the other. The third assembly added the language that our director of worship does not have the force of law. That is, it wasn't considered part of the formal constitution as the rest of the book of church order, uh, which also contains the uh, rules for uh, discipline. So it's uh, the question then is, what does the directory for worship say? And it basically uh, says that this is the uh, officers of the church, the minister and or elders are the ones who should lead the congregation in public worship uh, and therefore to use those who are not ordained um, members of the congregation and reading uh, scripture is um, something that has been a matter of debate uh, in the history of the Reformation and Reform Reformed churches. And it's definitely one that is in the Presbyterian Church in, uh, in America. Uh, so as mentioned above, he says, uh, the regular principle of worship teaches that we're not only to do what is prescribed by God's word in public worship. This means that we're only to do what is prescribed. Uh, this means that the Bible is the single rule of practice when it comes to how we are to worship our Lord. Also remember that 
He is jealous of our proper worship. In God's word, he has prescriptions for our liturgy by direct command or by good and necessary inference. A few examples of these direct or are the ordinary means of grace, the reading and preaching of the word, the prayers of God's people, and the proper administration of the sacraments. So uh, with that in mind, he uses some examples, of, uh, Matthew Adams does, uh, to express you know, from scripture um, how this is to work. So at the end, he brings it to a conclusion uh, after making certain um uh, lengthy statement. So it's a long article, but very helpful. Um, as uh, let me see, get where he says, um, yeah, for further conclusion, the response has taken much longer than I initially uh, desired to anticipate. However, we conclude we do uh, not think this is a secondary issue for the PCA. Our denomination has a high view of the ordinary means of grace. Remember, that's the preaching of the word, the administration of sacraments and proper use of discipline. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question 88 asks, what are the outward means whereby God communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And it responds, the outward and ordinary means whereby communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacrament and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. But even the most essential element of worship within these ordinary means is the reading and preaching of the word. The Shorter Catechism seems to agree uh, with uh, this as question 89, then how is the word made effectual to salvation? And answers the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through the through faith onto salvation. So it says, uh, concludes, it's time to take the scriptures at face value. It's time to hold fast to a plan, uh, reading of our theological standards uh, uh, that are plain in our theological standards. We do not need innovation. We need to be faithful. Uh, we shall see barriers shattered if we strive to be faithful to the word. If we strive to be faithful, we will see our scripturally prescribed worship practices breaking through the cultural, gender, and socioeconomic blockades. So the point that Matthew Adams is taking is that the appropriate ones in public worship uh, to present, um, lead the congregation in worship are the uh, pastor and elders uh, who have that responsibility in their shepherding role. So that's the nature of the bait. And as I said, um, there's even a response to this response now. And you can read that on the quote report. Um, the uh, even today, uh, if you it's uh, I'm there on Monday, if you're hearing this on another day. So, Paul, what so do you think? My thought is these are the types of high brow intricacies that we can discuss when we're not worried about side A and side B and Memorial uh, Presbyterian Church. Uh, this is the number one article from last week. <laughs> and uh, most of the time, articles like this are not number one. That's right. And it's of interest because they, you know, Paula, I, I used to say that, I regularly say that what we do in the church is take a number of things very seriously and personally. And, and one is how we worship. And the uh, other is the kind of songs we sing, which is a part of, of worship. 
and also what we think about the leaders of the church, especially our pastor, uh, that there's just a sort of a personal line of relationship in these areas that are, you know, really critical. So that's probably another reason why it was uh, number, uh, you know, included in number, uh, number one of the, of the 10. And it is a sensitive thing. And, and we have the, oh, well, see, back in the, almost 20 years ago, the big issue was, you know, the worship wars of traditional versus contemporary worship. Uh, that, that has morphed into a different form. The worship wars are still going, but it's a little bit framed differently than it was even 20, 25 years ago. So, okay, well, number two um, maybe continues uh, in this Beware the Latitude of the Pharisees by Ryan Beasy. He is a PCA pastor in uh, Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, First Presbyterian Church. And um, it's uh, beware of the latitude of the Pharisees in terms of taking liberties, latitudes, uh, with reference to things. So in one sense, it follows along with the last article uh, because it's talking about what uh, what is the what is the freedom that we have, the, the latitude to say that something is, um, you know, considered uh, essential uh, or is it just a uh, temporary or uh, a circumstance? And so how we go about handling that theoretically and theologically and biblically is um, a really uh, important uh, kind of thing. But he says, regardless of whether we attended a relatively uh, conservative or relatively liberal congregation, uh, this is uh, Ryan Beasy speaking about his background growing up in Lutheranism, the order of worship essentially did not change. Uh, did not even matter whether we went to a contemporary service or the traditional service, for both shared the same basic structure. Uh, this was uh, not because the various congregations shared the same theology or worldview, but because the congregations all followed one various settings in either the green, maroon, or blue hymnal, along with the lectionary. So depending on what brand of Lutheranism you were, or what color hymn book you followed. So as a young person, it seemed to me that the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, was united by a shared uh, worship experience of worship. And this observation held up across worship styles and also along the theological spectrums. But he says in the Presbyterian Church in America, our unity comes not because we share one common liturgy. Uh, we have no prescribed liturgy that comes from a denominational publisher or imposed by the headquarters. Um, the, this is due in, at least in part to our Puritan heritage. The Westminster Assembly opted not to produce a prayer book like the Anglican Church had uh, or has, uh, dictating the form of worship across uh, the three kingdoms. Instead, the assembly produced the directory for the public worship of God, which sets forth the general heads, the sense and scope of the prayers and other parts of public worship. The directory described generally what was to be done in worship along with manner, uh, focus, and general content for each part of worship. So the unity in the PCA regarding worship then flows not from the imposition of a specific liturgy or lectionary, but a shared theology regarding worship and ministry, uh, which is reflected in our mutual agreement to follow the rules and prescriptions set forth in the Book of Church Order. And that is specifically also the directory 
for public worship. So he says, in short, the unity of the PCA is not the result of many every elder in every congregation doing everything the same, uh, that is absolute conformity, but because of our shared theology and our compliance with the same theological rules and principles to govern our practice. We are bound together by our vows to uphold the same theological standards. And so our unity is nonetheless expressed in our diversity. So now the question comes then is how, what are the areas of latitude and sometimes getting into those, it gets into sausage making and lawmaking uh, so that you have the latitude of Pharisees. What did the Pharisees do? And so he explains something about that and his understanding about it. He gives some illustrations um, in terms of how this uh, works together. And then he has some concluding thoughts. The church in every age must be on guard against pharisaical practices, even though the Pharisees have long since died. In the PCA, our unity is not the result of doing everything exactly the same, but because we all agree to follow the same rules, which reflect our shared theological principles. If we go down the path of these hypothetical situations that he mentioned earlier in the article, if the attitudes and linguistic abuses reflected in these parables become reflective of the ways people operate in the PCA, then what hope for peace and unity do we have? So this is basically a saying, we watch how, you know, as we're exercising our freedom within the context of our history and our theology, uh, the how much latitude and how wide the space uh, should we take uh, in, in in this specifically? It's you can see in the area of worship, as I said, this we all take it very realistically and personally. Mm-hmm. And so, Paul, the another aspect of what we had been talking about before. Yeah, well, you know, and a lot of this latitude could also be described as benefit of the doubt, um, or at least that came along with it. Um, almost an infinite amount of benefit of the doubt. You know, the Pharisees were given, um, and then using clever language. Uh, Ryan Beasy writes, do you see how clever the Pharisees were with their use of language? If they happened to make a vow they didn't want to keep or had an obligation they didn't want to fulfill, they could simply claim the latitude to disregard it by asserting the vow was not made uh, was not by the gold of the temple or the gift of the altar. So Jesus rebuked this line of thinking. He writes in his sermon on the mount and commanded people instead to submit to the plain meaning of words. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The king's words issue a strong warning for those who play fast and loose with language. The latitude the Pharisees presumed for themselves by words was explicitly condemned by Jesus uh, as uh, and comes uh, from evil. So, yeah, really uh, interesting. Uh, you know, it, it's just interesting to think about what what some may view, you know, as, as, as obstacles. Let's twist the meaning of words. This happens in, in all institutions. You know, let's let's twist the meaning of words uh, so that we don't have to do what the plain meaning of the words teach. You know, and it happens uh, all over the place. It does. So we and we all can uh, be pharisaical on some issue or, or issues. And we have to be careful about the latitudes and the word games that we can play trying to rationalize and excuse our behavior to give um 
meaning to whatever we think we'd like to do. So uh, careful exposition, exegesis, reading of the text in light of the whole of scripture is important. So it's a good reminder in these last two articles that, uh, you know, th th there are things that we like, you know, the difference between precept and perception. Uh, uh, and so we, or preference, uh, you know, we need to say, make sure we understand the precept correctly in order to make check our preferences uh, alongside of that. So good, helpful article as the first one was by Matt Adams. Number three uh, by Carl Truman. In the first things, uh, he has the title Identity Politics on the Right. Uh, and he's referring to a recent controversy that has swirled in, uh, at least in some parts, in some quarters of the church, uh, surrounding a man named Thomas Accord, or Accord, a classical Christian school headmaster exposed for running a white supremacist uh, Twitter account has proved instructive on a number of fronts. It demonstrates that real racism and white supremacy do exist, a point uh, that the grade inflation to which these terms have been subjected by the professional anti-racists of the last few years has served only to obscure. We must not allow the trivialization of racism to blind us to the places where it actually is. It also is a reminder that a radical right uh, that come, cannot effectively operate uh, a, a, a pseudonymously um, Twitter account uh, is unlikely to be, uh, see, be seizing control of America by force anytime soon. Uh, in other words, what he's saying is that here is a man that was presenting himself as, um, you know, open and cultural, uh, studied, beginning uh, of a uh, classical Christian school in which you had certain expectations of that. And using a pseudonym, uh, he was taking and espousing or allegedly espousing um, words, phrases, principles that would appear to lead towards racism and white supremacy. And so he was called out on that. He's had to resign his position. So in this article, um, then Truman is just using that to expose, you know, the identity politics that are on the right, which all we already deal with on the left. Uh, beyond the bluster, though, two other issues struck me as noteworthy, he says. First, it is clear that identity politics as a home on the reactionary right, just as it does on the progressive left. This is no real surprise in a world where everything has become politicized. Such a scenario was bound to come to pass. The danger for Christians is that the apparent polarization of society makes uh, the stakes of political debate seem extremely high. And so in such a situation, extreme positions become attractive and even irresistible. Some, he says, may resist and argue that this is to bring politics into the pulpit. Um, Unfortunately, in a world where everything is political, everything said in the pulpit is already political to some degree, which I think is an interesting uh, statement that uh, people can misread uh, the, the matter. And he, but here's the second issue is that the accord controversy touched to some extent uh, is that of Christian nationalism. The term itself seems rather slippery. Uh, by the way, Pablo, there'll be another article on touching on that term Christian nationalism coming in our top 10. Yeah, the, uh, the, the very next one, I believe. 
Oh, is it next? Yes, it is. Uh, the term itself seems slippery, covering everything from hard right racism to what many of us would simply have regarded as old-fashioned patriotism. In this context, a recent essay by Brad Littlejohn is of most welcome and helpful intervention. Uh, so he talks about his, you know, the, the concept of patriotism should not be in and of itself equated with anything like a nationalistic spirit or this Christian nationalism or anything that would give a hint of racial uh, issues. Uh, that's not the, you know, way uh, it is. In fact, he says to love one's country, to be patriotic is thus not to sneer at every other nation or to look with scorn upon other peoples. It's simply the appropriate response of gratitude and love for the place where one belongs. That gives one an identity that provides with one with community and with purpose. Seen in that light, uh, to be unpatriotic or to espouse chauvinistic nationalism are both morally wrong. So it's an interesting take on that, that uh, patriotism is the thing that sometimes is uh, looked down upon uh, because it sounds like you're thinking that we're better than our country's better than your country. And he, uh, and uh, Truman argues against that. And so he ends up by saying the Tawdry Acord affair has revealed an ugly side to a certain part of the American Christian world. And I think that's the warning that he has in this article. It's a Tawdry side. Uh, real white supremacy really exists in a real, in real sin and is a real sin. It requires real action and real repentance from those Christians who espouse it. But in reacting to this, we need to be careful not to fall into the sin of ingratitude for other things. What is the What are the other things? Such as the country, warts and all that we call home. So don't put everything into the same pot and assume that that one word or a couple of words that sound patriotic and uh, thankful for national uh, heritages and uh, history are uh, necessarily uh, something that equates to or should be read as racist or uh, divisive. I think that's yeah. a really good warning on from uh, Carl Truman. Yeah, you know, there's, you know, you, you, there's, a, there's a road and there's a ditch on either side. And so, uh, you know, you, you certainly can go on, on one side or the other. Uh, I, you know, I think this, um, uh, and again, identity politics on the right uh, is the title of this piece by by Carl Truman. I, you know, I know I don't know. There's a there's a lot of and this next article is going to touch on it, but there's a lot of movements, uh, a lot of a lot of things going on right now, um, just in response to the state of the country. And I think some of them are good, and some of them, are, you know, are bad, or some of them could be good at first and then go off the rails and be bad. You know. Um, uh, I think in specifically just speaking with my generation, you know, I'm 38 years old. We were very much raised, uh, in the, in the public schools or the government schools, uh, to be, it was a very much, uh, a colorblind, uh, ideal. That is what was constantly promoted colorblind. You know, we're all, we're all the same. And, uh, but that's obviously not what is being taught now. And now you have it like an entire generation or two of, of people who are adults, and um they they were they were taught this this colorblind uh don't notice our differences uh uh you know curriculum and and now of course the the, the politics of of the 
generation now or the, the one coming up is like, no, you know, uh, you're actually a racist, you know, and, and even, uh, you know, even attempting to treat us as equal is denying your systemic racism. And so there's a lot of people that have, have just thrown their hands up and have just said, well, you know what, <laughs> you know, what's the what's the point of all this? You know, I'm just going to go and uh, I'm just going to focus on me. And of course, that's not uh, uh, loving your neighbors yourself. Uh, and that, focusing on yeah, and focusing on me, it really is just another form of self-love. If you, you right know, are falsely nationalistic too. Exactly. I, I'm just trying to put my head around, you know, what what is actually causing you know some of this, uh, you know, the identity politics on the right, if you will. Well, there's the uh, you know the the uh, like you said, you're you grew up probably uh, in your 38 year history different than the one I grew up in. Uh, where, you know, we, there was a patriotism that was very open and it was, you know, very obvious in, um, at least in the school system as I went through it, which now there's almost an embarrassment to say that, well, American, I'm sorry about that, you know, um, and yeah. there's an apology, apologizing going on because people start focusing on the various historical events, which uh, historically are bad. You know, you uh, we're going to talk about slavery here in a, just a moment um, as part of our history. You know, it, technically it's a part of every culture's history in one form or other, but it's whatever we have to claim whatever is ours and hold to it. And so if we look at it from that perspective under the microscope, then why do I want to celebrate uh, the you know pride in my particular uh, patre, that is my country. And so that creates a problem. And I think that's where the, uh, so the identity comes, uh, from, from that perspective. And yeah. this is almost like the cultural side of what we just looked at with the first two articles dealing with what is the point of identity in the life of the church with reference to how it gathers for worship and who is able to do what. And what liberties do we have now? This is more on the social side and what mm -hmm. social contracts do we have and well, how are we to engage our. I'll add uh, just add this. You're exactly right, Dominic, about, uh, you know, the level of patriotism back then versus now. And as a matter of fact, uh, I don't know if uh, any of you want to want to waste your time on this, but if you'll go back and listen to Ronald Reagan's 1989 farewell address. You know, he, he talks about everything that happened over his eight years. But the last one of the last things he said was is they had failed. Uh, they had failed to um, to make it OK for parents to to teach them their their kids about patriotism and uh, to not be ashamed of the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I think there was there's always been like a, uh, a you know, uh, I guess you there's always been that fear. And, and of course, I think it obviously came true. So absolutely. Okay, well, then uh, moving then to um, the more of an explanation of this, maybe a little bit of more from the uh, opinion piece from uh, Larry Ball, a progress report on, quote, Christian nationalism, close quote. Uh, he refers that Larry does that he wrote an article that showed up on the Equal Report. We ran it uh, in September of this year, just uh, three, four months ago. Uh, called Christian nationalism, dump the term while we still can. And he, in that article, so it's uh, hyperlinked in the, art, the present article, you can go back and read it. 
that he warned that we were going to have this debate. And he says, let's get rid of it because it is filled with content and meaning that that doesn't fit. And I think that's what Carl Truman was also saying is that you use word Christian nationalism. It sounds like you're creating you know, boundaries and putting up a wall and saying this this needs to be protected against all costs when he's just saying, no, we just needed to honor the history and our patriotism, you know, that kind of thing. So um, so now he says, here it is, because of the book uh, by Dr. Stephen Wolf, and we, it was mentioned last, year, last week in our uh, top 10, uh, the way his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, uh, he says, most critical reviews of this book have been hard hitting. And he gives one of them uh, from and Kevin DeYoung, and we had that on top of 10 last week, The Rise of the Right-Wing Wokeism by Kevin DeYoung. That was his review of uh, Dr. Wolf's book. Uh, so the phrase Christian nationalism sounds like a political movement. I suppose this is one reason I do not use the term. Uh, I prefer the term Christian nation, which is more rooted in the Bible. The title, A Case for Christian Nation, would have been more to my liking. So he explains then, goes in detail about defining what a nation is. I'll bore you that because it's a good woven interaction here that he provides. Uh, and so then he comes down to the question, was America ever Christian? To answer this question, let's go back and define some concepts. And he he says, I'm a mathematician, so I like to you know put down my thoughts in a precise kind of way. Um, and he says there are basically three markers that the United States, uh, in the United States that could be used to consider whether we're a Christian nation. And he talks about it uh, socially, uh, the word command, and then um, thirdly, uh, the word legal. And he explains each one of those I won't uh, bore you now, because I think you need to read how he defines uh, the terms uh, uh, social, command, and the legal. Uh, and so then he draws from that, that he said, Christianity so permeated society in early America that our founders uh, could not foresee uh, that what would hap be happening in the in little over 200 years in predicting the long-term consequences of present actions, we all have our blind spots. So I believe that this um, decision to become a legally secular nation on the part of the federal level, and uh, Larry Ball talks about that aspect of the, the purposely developing a secular nation. In other words, the first amendment of the Constitution um, in the Bill of Rights, uh, in the first statement is dealing with freedom of religion. It's that the Congress... The federal government would not um, establish a church, nor would it prohibit the free exercise of religion. So they removed themselves from that because the culture of the time in which the Constitution was written was uh, deeply affected by the long history uh, coming out of uh, Western Europe in which they, there was a national church that existed. So, for instance, in England, it was the Church of England, which is the Anglican Church. In Scotland, it's the, uh, the Church of Scotland is the Presbyterian Church, and other countries had their churches. So the founders said, uh, the writers, drafters of the Constitution said, we don't want to have a church of the United States of America. OK, uh, we, we, we're just not going to make a decision that we'll have one 
And the question is how to go about it. Well, Larry Ball's position is that basically then chose to become a secular nation that had Christian influence, but it was not, um, did not have the Church of the United States of America. So you have to follow this. It's easier if you read it, so I'm not going to go into it uh, all uh, that much. But he concludes, foundational definitions matter. This is what is missing in the current discussion on topics like Christian nationalism. One thing is for certain, from what I call the social command and legal perspectives, America is no longer a Christian nation. The alarm is now being heard very clearly. Christians are dealing with grief and are scrambling to do something about it. Uh, some, like Dr. Wolf, are writing books. Some reluctantly are adopting his terms. Others are attacking the writers of such books without offering foundational definitions. So it's important to make sure we're reading that. He concludes then, yes, ultimately, evangelism is our only hope. In other words, if you think that everything's going to pot and not going right um, and you, you're you not pleased with it, evangelism is our only hope. A Christian nation must come from the bottom up. That is the hearts of a converted people, not from the top down. That is through political legislation, which really is taking place more in the secular sense. Neither will it come from heavy weighted books. America must be dis discipled again with the gospel. And the again part is referring to the, the heavy Christian influence that did exist during that period of time. Uh, discipled again with the gospel before we can begin to think about uh, being a Christian nation. Uh, Jesus commanded us to disciple the nations. The uh, He says America must be discipled again before uh, with the gospel, before we can begin thinking about being a Christian nation, Jesus commanded us to disciple the nations and not just a few elect from among the nations, and that includes America. So here is where we must begin. So Larry really is saying that we were a Christian nation in the sense that there was a great deal of Christian influence and impact in the way people framed their, their thinking. That has now left us, and most people have agreed that to say that we are in a post-Christian uh, culture at this point. So the answer is not a top-down reinstitution of what happened, but a bottom-up moving in along the church to take the gospel seriously and to begin discipling our own nation along with the other nations and ethnicities that exist in the world. So what is your sorry, my mic, my sorry, my mic was off. It's a really thought provoking article, and I agree with him about the you know the bottom up, and we've got to disciple the nations. And I appreciate him to, you know referencing the Great Commission, teaching the nations to obey. Um, you know, if you don't, but my thoughts on this are, if you don't, you know, if you don't like the word Christian nationalism, do you like the word Christo fascist better? Because I misses my point for weeks now because that's what they're going to use. They're 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 going to use you know they're going to look at the Westminster Confession and look at what it says about civil magistrates and say that this is a Christo fascist document. And so I agree, you know, discipling from the bottom up is also going to going to produce people uh, having influence uh, and putting the Christian ethic back into your local communities. I think that's what all that's what we want. And uh, there's going to be a reaction. So I I, I might. 
my thought on this is instead of trying to have this debate as late as the hour it looks for our country uh, with the, uh, the, the, the way the depravity is going, it might be a good idea to, to try to um, actually uh, control what the word Christian nationalism actually means. Maybe it doesn't mean a political movement. I know that it could I know people tend to look at it as such. Maybe it could mean the other. Now, he kudos to, to to Larry Ball here for for talking about George Washington being a Mason. I wanted to read this por- portion and and calling into the American founding's uh, uh, well, calling a little bit of the uh, I don't know the the persuasions of some of our founding fathers. Uh, you know, maybe them not being as Christian as as we would like. Thirdly, he he writes quote thirdly from a legal perspective. Um, since the, uh, the the command has shifted to the federal government, the United States Constitution is now the dominant legal document. And so previously in the second point, he had referenced how the states had, uh, you know, in order to hold public office, they had requirements that you had to affirm Christianity in, in the states. But he basically saying that that's not really the case now uh, because the U.S. Constitution is now the dominant legal document. It is the final reference point for all legal matters. As it is interpreted by the Supreme Court, originally from a legal perspective, America as a confederation of states was a Christian nation. Not so now. I would say that the Constitution uh, is a Christian document, uh, technically. Um, There is a provision in there for vetoes where the president has so many days to veto a bill from Congress before it becomes law. And Sundays are not counted against the the, the number of days. I mean, so uh, it, it certainly assumes a Christian government. But he goes on, in my view, uh, it is my view that the United States Constitution was never a Christian document. Uh, We must realize that our founding forefathers had clay feet just like us. I believe George Washington, who presided over the Constitutional Convention, was a Christian man, but I think his commitment to the Masonic Lodge with its Unitarian God was greater than his commitment to the church. Ben Franklin, a prominent presence at the convention, was a deist in addition to being a Mason. And so when I get to this point, I'm like, yeah, but what about John Witherspoon? And of course, that's who he gets to next. He says James Madison, not a Mason, studied under Reverend John Witherspoon uh, at what is now Princeton University, but he graduated with a commitment to the perspective of Scottish realism and natural law learned from Witherspoon. Religion was good for civil order, but Christian denominations served America best by fighting with each other. In his mind, this would uh, this would keep uh, this would keep them from establishing a national church. Anyway, it's a very thought provoking article. Uh, but again, my first thought upon reading was, if you don't like the term Christian nationalism, I uh, wonder what you think of the term Christian fascism, because <laughs> I feel like I like the term Christian nationalism, Dominic, just a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, again, that's uh, these few last two articles by Carl Truman and now by Larry Ball both help to set a predicate that we need to you know, make sure we define our terms well and understand our history. And we're having, like I said, another historical overview that will be coming up in just a moment. But we now move to number five. The Big Tent Has Collapsed is the title by Jay Therrell. And he's comes from the Wesleyan, uh, John Wesley's uh, side of the equation and the Methodism. Because right now in the news recently, the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church is in the news quite a bit. And he begins uh, for months, years, really, bishops in the United Methodist Church, along with other progressive leaders, have pushed hard on two ideas. One, 
The United Methodist Church is a big tent. Two, there is room for everyone, including theological conservatives, in the United Methodist Church. Well, from November 2 to 5 of 2022, the five U.S. jurisdictions held their conferences and elected uh, bishops. The results are clear. The big tent has collapsed. The United Methodist Church now has the most liberal council of bishops in its history. Not one single traditionalist bishop was elected, not one. Forget about those elections telegraphing the future of the United Methodist Church. They declare the denomination's uh, present state. And it should now be crystal clear that the two points above in reality are the following. One, the big tent has collapsed. Number two, the time for traditionalist churches to go if they can still, uh, if they still can. So uh, in this, um, uh, Theral is basically saying that because of the clear direction the church has taken, that the what was once intended as a big tent experiment has now collapsed and the tent is not can't be stretched out any further and uh, so it in essence has to be reduced uh, and then he gives some examples um, of the some of these bishops from these various conferences uh, in terms of what they're holding to uh, the for instance the north central jurisdiction elected uh, Kennetha uh, Bingham Sai Bishop uh, uh, Bingham Sai will begin leading the Iowa conference on January 1. Before her election, she served as chief con uh, connectional ministries officer of the con uh, connectional table. During an interview with the delegation as she was campaigning, she said, no, it is not important that we agree on who Christ is. She went on to further cast doubt on where she stands on the incarnation of Jesus when she said during the same interview, God became flesh, but not particular flesh. There's no particularity around that. God became incarnate in a culture, but not one culture. To read the article uh, about this, uh, including a recording of the aforementioned, uh, you can click here and read it so you can hear with your own minds. And so he goes on with the other jurisdictions as well, where they're saying the, each of these bishops that were elected uh, take a position that um, is contrary to what would be historic evangelical uh, reformational theology. So from this just small sampling, uh, Thero says, above is clear is that it's not, it, there is no, not any room left for theological conservatives in the United Methodist Church. It's time for us to sit down, be quiet, and give our tithes and offerings while progressives continue to implement their agenda. And so he says, really, it's time to go. Well, is, we've had other articles here in the last uh, few months that the number of churches within the Methodist, the United Methodist system are uh, beginning to leave. Uh, the, um, let's see, the number of churches they ex expect this year to be something like 1,500. Uh, the next year in 2023, maybe up to 3,000. Our ERD is sort of in the pipeline because there was a, a provision made about how churches can leave and take their property and their assets with them. So the warning is, uh, if you haven't, as a church, already started that process, because it can take a while to go through all the steps, uh, get with it, uh, here's how you can do it, and so forth. But the main thing and takeaway is the, uh, the big tent 
uh, is no longer Big Ten and is collapsed and it's no longer of any viable use and it's time to move on. I have a little update on the Methodist Church in my town here in Arkansas. Uh, and it's interesting, and I, I don't know if this is 100% a true statistic, but somebody told me that every Methodist church that has voted to leave the denomination, uh, that it, it has been granted by the, uh, the, the, the governing body over you know, the uh, individual particular churches, uh, with the exception of three churches, all of them in the state of Arkansas, believe it or not. Which I which I find uh, really uh, uh, interesting. I think other people are, are finding that very suspect. There is a uh, a battle going on uh, here in the state of Arkansas over over the Methodist churches who have voted to leave. They're not being allowed to leave. All three of them are being challenged, and it's actually uh, it got to a point where one minister uh, uh, of the congregation who voted to leave has been suspended. Uh, and then, uh, but actually, uh, took, took to the pulpit this past Sunday anyway, and preached a sermon to people who wanted to hear him preach. So there is a, uh, really just a, a, a total, um, breakdown. Well, I wouldn't say breakdown. There, there's just a lot of things happening that are positive, but also, you know, painful for a lot of people, uh, seeing that they voted to leave and they're not being allowed to. So. Right. And that, and yet they did, uh, the, the gracious exiting or withdrawing was drawn up and approved and agreed to. And so where something like that is happening, uh, re restricting uh, or denying the um, permission to go when they follow the rules, it's uh, a shame. But that's another indicator that the big tent has collapsed. Um, and so you make up the rules or you change the rules along the way. And that's unfortunate. But it's just a, a warning that this is what happens in the life of churches. So the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will always be continuing how it looks in a visible testimony here and there uh, can sometimes take different um, looks and appearances. So but it's just interesting to just watch what's happening in that particular branch of the visible church. OK, number six brings us more to a theological issue about the rapture and the return of Christ. The, um, this is by uh, Nick Botzik uh, in the uh, table talk as December 2022. Uh, contrary to many widely accepted misconceptions about the rapture and the return of Christ, including those found in dispensationalism, scripture knows of only two comings of Christ at the first, uh, the first at his incarnation and the second at the consummation, the New Testament revelation in the events of the uh, that accompany the return of Christ includes the uh, teaching of a uh, uh, of a passage, First uh, First Thessalonians four, that many Western evangelicals misguidedly see as proof of an evacuation of the believers to heaven to escape some or all of the tribulation that precedes the visible return of Christ. But this passage actually teaches that believers who are alive when Christ returns in the glory will be caught up at the same time, which is the rapture, uh, at the time of his return, immediately after Christ raises his people from the dead at his second coming. In other words, the church is not evacuated before the final coming of Christ and is not promised an escape from tribulation. And so that's uh, taking on the sort of historic uh, dispensational meaning, and he goes on to then explain, uh, Nick, Nick uh, Botzig does, of uh, what 
Paul's meaning is. And he says, the apostle wrote this letter, that is 1 Thessalonians, to encourage sorrowful believers regarding the death of believers they had known and loved. False teachers had troubled these Christians with the notion that the resurrection had already occurred. In response, Paul set out a general summary of what will happen when Christ returns. He directly links the idea of believers being caught up to meet the Lord in the air to the public proclamation of Christ's return. This militates against the idea of a secret rapture. Christ's return will be accompanied by a public pr uh, proclamation. Jesus will bring first bring about the resurrection of his people who have died, and then he will cause those who are alive to be caught up together with him in the air. Uh, scripture nowhere advances the idea of a secret rapture before a period of tribulation, but it does reveal that the second coming of Christ will be a rapturous event for all believers. So he, uh, very short order, just uh, deals with one of those areas that in broad evangelicalism uh, is a difference of opinion with regard to the second coming of Christ and whether it's all at one time or whether it's going to divide it into different parts. And so uh, it's a good read, uh, well explained in a short but very you know, helpful article. Yeah, you have the you have the first coming, and then you have the the, the what would you call the other the other one a, a half a half a halfway yeah. coming so yeah, one point five coming. and then two point oh. <laughs> right. Uh, but no, the, <laughs> believe it or not, those left behind movies on Amazon I think are available to watch for free. So uh, <laughs> if you want to uh, if you want to get a good laugh, uh, you can watch those because I I have watched them so. Okay, well, it's a good advertising for them uh, as well. Uh, the not, we'll not as a, a representation of of uh, of fact, mind exactly. you. Exactly, I'm just uh, throwing that out there. And finally, we'll be coming up to the article uh, in just a moment of the final judgment. So, but before, in between, number seven, article number seven, article is called "Race, Homosexuality, and Historical Confusion" uh, by um, Donald. Fortson, professor of church history at Reformed Theological Seminary. He teaches out of um, Charlotte uh, campus. And this is uh, an, actually an older article reprint of uh, going back a few years. But uh, he, he dresses it. He's a church historian. And from one angle, he's saying, we, you know, as we already said, that there are certain, you know, dark uh, periods and not such righteous periods in the history of our denomination and the, and the culture and the country. But we need to make sure that we understand how scripture deals with the two idea of race and homosexuality, because he says there is confusion if we try and apply the same um, method of uh, biblical interpretation. So he says, uh, starts out one approach to gay affirming scholarship has been to claim that the church has modified its interpretation over the centuries. Uh, this includes not only a change in views and practices from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but also modification in biblical interpretation during the Christian centuries. Uh, Presbyterian uh, theologian Jack Rogers asserts, uh, Christian people for centuries assumed that their Bibles condoned slavery and the subordination of women to men. Yet over time, Often reluctantly, people came to follow the Holy Spirit's leading to accept people 
of African origin and women as full and equal members of the church. The Holy Spirit is once again working to change our church, making us restless, challenging us to give up culturally conditioned prejudices against people of homosexual orientation. So that's the tying in that the church had a view um, the understanding the scripture with regard to slavery, with regard to women, with regard to who participates in worship service. And now in the biblical sexual ethic area, uh, we can now see how the Holy Spirit is actually changing our minds and the words that we have uh, in the scripture. So the supposed parallel, um, Fortson goes on to say, between Christians uh, in the past during the Bible to justify slavery and the contemporary church using scripture to condemn homosexuality is both misleading and confused in its account of church history. Historically, there is no connection between Christian attitude towards slavery and homosexuality, but there does appear to be a historical resemblance uh, between present day attempts, and this is what his article is really dealing with, a resemblance between present-day attempts to reinterpret the Bible to support homosexuality and past misuse of the Bible in order to prop up race-based slavery. In both cases, biblical teaching has been co-opted to support a politically popular position, enabling Christians to comfortably fit into the cultural values of their time. So uh, Fortson explains a little bit more, but just uh, because of its length, we can't read it all. But just to end here, um, one cause of this variation of interpretation of the slavery question had to do with understanding the biblical material. While the New Testament appears on the surface to support all forms of slavery, in fact, the apostles were only concerned with regulating this social relation among Christians as it existed in the Roman world. They certainly were not offering an apology for the legitimacy of perpetual slavery. A careful understanding of the differences between the first century and American context makes it clear that the Bible cannot legitimately be utilized to support race-based slavery of those kidnapped or sold into bondage against their wills. The Bible firmly denounces slave trading and treating others as inferiors based upon race. The story of Christianity in America and slavery is an entirely different situation from the unequivocal Christian condemnation of homosexuality for two millennia. Uh, Where uh, where some uh, in the past manipulated biblical teaching on slavery to fit the American context, many Christians rejected this innovation. Homosexuality has never had any historic uh, advocates in the church. Homosexuality, like slavery, was common in the ancient world, but the apostles never countenanced trying to regulate homosexual practice, but comprehensively repudiated homosexuality at every turn. There is not a shred of biblical material that can be garnered to support any form of homosexual practice. And I think that's the subtext which comes down here in that if slavery was being uh, defended biblically and now we realize that was wrong. Uh, so now in, we, in the sexual era, ethics area, uh, we can also realize the church was wrong uh, in the area of uh, homosexuality or any other um, issue that may be considered uh, what was once considered sexual perversion or break from God's understanding of um, 
uh, of sexuality. And I think this is very helpful uh, from a historian who uh, looked at it, has looked at it carefully to say that there is a major distinction about how the scripture handled uh, dealing with slavery and how it re teaches about homosexuality and anything biblical sexual ethics in nature. And so, Paul, I think that really is a helpful yeah, um, um, they, article. Yeah, definitely. And I have heard this argument before from from, you know, theological liberals who may may not be may not know their theological liberals or claim that but are being tempted by kind of what they've heard and and it kind of goes something like this you know our parents and grandparents misinterpreted the scriptures concerning you know uh, racism or slavery um and i'm just so afraid that we're doing the same thing now you know with homosexuality the idea would be that we're you know just using the bible to justify discrimination against uh uh you know against black people and now we're using the bible to justify discrimination against homosexuals this this article very helpful in uh in destroying that that false uh, dichotomy right so we really com uh, commend it to you and um and uh, thank uh, dr fortson for uh having written it and making those very excellent fine distinctions okay number uh eight um is by Gregory K. Beale on the final judgment, <clears throat> another article that uh, was in Table Talk, the December issue of uh, Table Talk uh, dealt with the whole area of uh, judgment, the second coming and of Christ and so forth. And uh, it says, uh, he begins, the Bible features multiple references to the final judgment. Matthew 25 is probably the longest such passage passage in all scripture in verses 31 to 46 christ separates the sheep from the goats uh with a former rewarded with a kingdom inheritance and the latter to depart into eternal fire and then other extended discussions at the end of time judgment are uh, he lists then a number of other passages that uh, one can study um a question that he raises that needs to be posed is how the believer's justification in Christ is related to first God's final judgment. And then number two, the requirement that believers must show their good works to pass through the judgment. Uh, and then we need to look third at how the final judgment relates to non-Christians. And so he goes through here and explains uh, how the our trust in Christ, that we're complete justified in Christ, and yet at the same time, uh, when we stand before the judgment seat, we have to give an account for what we do. Uh, so the, um, the, you know, the, he explains it very carefully here uh, in that we, we are admitted into the presence of God only based on the final and complete uh, work of Christ on our behalf, uh, where he, through his active and passive obedience, has guaranteed those who believe in him by faith that they have eternal life, uh, then we still have to uh, do what is good works as evidence of our faith. And he uh, gives a good example um, when a good illustration here, I'll just leave it for you to uh, to read in this article uh, of what really finally comes. So the uh, point is, is that uh, the focus is on the uh, truth of Christ's work and the importance of the Christian do, producing the fruit that flows out of the renewed life as we work to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And we still give an account for that, but that isn't 
the basis on which we are allowed in or kept out of heaven. It is in Christ alone. Very good article by uh, Dr. Beal. Yeah, I mean, asks a question. If you just, I mean, if you go read, you know, Revelation and those uh, final, uh, you know, the final judgment uh, verses, <laughs> man, I mean, you know, it's it, they're not pulling any punches. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it, it talks about though that we're, you know, uh, but if this is the case, we need we need to ask uh, why the New Testament says or can say elsewhere that works are necessary for passing unscathed through the final judgment. For example, Romans 2.13 says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified or better vindicated. There will be a a judicial evaluation of the works of all people. God will render to each one according to his works at the time of the judgment. Some who do good, though not perfect, will obtain eternal life, Romans 1.7. On the other hand, others will be found wanting to undergo judgment. Romans 2, 6, and uh, 13 speaks of the necessity of doing works of God's law in order to be justified or better put vindicated at the time of the judgment of God. Accordingly, at the day of judgment, the righteous shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted. That's Westminster Larger Catechism 90. Works prove that saints have been righteous by faith alone all along. Very uh, interesting article. Yeah, very helpful. Okay, number nine uh, asks the question, should Christians use the term Eucharist for the Lord's Supper? Uh, this is by Jonathan Krauss, uh, I mean, uh, Landry Krauss, or Cruz. Um, the, basically, he says uh, there's some denominations that, you know, refer to the elements of the Lord's Supper as just the elements of the Lord's Supper, and they do not use the word Eucharist, and, and especially in Reformed context, it's not con- uh, regular use. Anyway, he says, well, this word comes from the Greek word Eucharisto, which means to be thankful on the basis of some received benefit. Uh, and so Jesus used the word during his ministry at a very interesting point, during <clears throat> the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark 8. In verse 6, we read, he says, uh, and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, you, and which is the word Eucharisto uh, version of it, uh, he gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to the disciples and to set before the people. And here Jesus established a practice that many of us hopefully still practice today, giving thanks uh, to God for his provision before we eat a meal, because we recognize it comes from the hand of God. And yet this particular meal was different from our regular meals at home. At this meal, God came to eat with his people in the flesh. As Jesus fed the 4,000, he foreshadowed that coming day when we would all feast in the marriage supper of the lamb. Uh, To eat at the end with uh, God is a sign of ultimate blessing. Isaiah prophesied that uh, at the end of all things, God would feast with his people, and this would be the sign of consummate uh, salvation. Uh, and we know that Jesus did <clears throat> broke the bread also in the Last Supper. So perhaps now we have a better appreciation of why the term Eucharist is used. Jesus gave thanks for the food the Father provided to him and the crowd that through him. We do not have uh, all, do we not have all the more reason to give thanks uh, to the for Lord for the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is truly a Thanksgiving feast, unlike any we have ex- ever experienced with uh, family friends uh, in November, at least serving, uh, you know, the Thanksgiving feast in November time. We give thanks, first of all, to God 
who would flow, allow us filthy sinners to feast with him. But beyond that, we give thanks, knowing that when God <clears throat> feeds us, we will never be hungry again. So just calling us to say, a, using a biblical word that has been transliterated into English, Eucharisto, into Eucharist, uh, it's an appropriate word to recognize what God has done and our thankfulness for what he has provided. Yeah, this is one of those, uh, you know, educational uh, articles for me. Well, of course, they're all educational for me, Dominic, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate it, what it what it had to say. OK, the last one, uh, the, I love the title. It's a real nice, big, long one. You hard to memorize. The most passionate science deniers are pro-trans experts and experts is in quotes who would profit from carving up kids. This is by Nathaniel Blake. Um, the. Of course, he's taking the medical field or that portion of the medical establishment uh, from it says from medical associations to hospitals. Countless people are in too deep to admit error, even as transgender ideology is collapsing. So it's falling in on its own. It's imploding uh, in terms of its lack of ability to have be rational and reasonable. So the transgender movement has a science problem. Trans activists and their allies are trying to silence their critics by accusing them of science denialism. But they are inadvertently illustrating the anti-science nature of transgender dogmas. For example, a recent opinion uh, piece in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Protecting Transgender Health and Challenging Science Denialism in Policy actually demonstrates that rejecting transgender ideology is the best way to protect health and uh, defend scientific integrity. And uh, that's the theme that uh, Nathaniel uh, Blake uh, covers here uh, to challenge, you know, and to say, you know, challenge the quote, uh, the transgender folks, who were the real science deniers? Uh, because they are trying to say that they, um, the let's see is it's this demonstrates the so-called gender affirming care is abnormal medicine. It usually disrupts healthy bodily functions for dubious mental benefits. It is like using intense uh, therm, uh, chemotherapy to treat anxiety. Thus, the case for transition, especially for children, needs to meet an extremely high standard of evidence. And um, the challenges the rationality of this whole movement. And it's beginning to collapse. And we've seen some recent articles, if you tracked along with things that have been having at Vanderbilt Medical Center and so forth, uh, that uh, they've had to, because of the pushback, rec you know, readjust, uh, rethink, and for the moment, even forestall any further uh, surgeries. Yeah. And, and it is continuing to happen. Uh, you know, you've got medical institutions being caught every every day, it seems like. Uh, secretly concealing what they're really doing, and we we do know that minors have had these surgeries. These these are these are occurring on minors, not to mention the uh, the puberty blocking hormones and the the chemical castration that results. I mean, you've got um, you've got young uh, you know boys and young girls who, because of their parents and a cheering media, are giving up the ability to ever have children again in some instances. 
in a lot of these instances. Their bodies will never recover. They won't be fertile and they won't be able to have children. And they have no idea what they're actually giving up just to essentially, you know, go along with what, whatever the culture is promoting. Um, and so, and we're the ones that are called anti-science. It is extremely ironic. Uh, they're calling the, you know, the mutilation of children healthcare. And uh, just like they used to call, or still call abortion healthcare. So. Exactly. Well, good article. Well, that's the uh, top 10, Paul, that we had for this week uh, today on the 20, uh, 19th of December, 2022. And tomorrow on the 20th, you receive this top 10 list all hyperlinked and ready to be clicked so that you can read through them on your own uh, as we urge you to do uh, share them with others forward them uh, to other folks enter into small group discussions uh, challenge yourself and challenge others with this uh, these articles that uh, you know just are good discussion starters and good helpful for our own personal walk let me also remind you that during december as we normally do for the accrual report is we do have a fundraiser uh, that year in to help us meet our uh, financial obligations to conduct this, uh, uh, re, you know, a magazine uh, ministry and trust that you will uh, help us out by going to the website, theacolareport.com. And there at the very top, there's a banner here's donate now. You click it and you can give as you're so directed uh, or so feel to do. And so we thank you very much for your readership and your uh, loyalty that way for this year. Uh, this uh, comes now to the end of, I think, 18th year, going to begin the 19th year of our uh, ministry on the on the internet and trust that it'll continue to have place in the life of the church. And so uh, from Paul and I, Paul, I can say this on behalf of uh, both of us, that uh, we wish you Merry Christmas and a grace-filled uh, 2023. And until the next time, we uh, look forward to seeing you again. The Lord bless you.